Hamlet podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Basics. Rather than career down the slippery slope of literary devices and technical terms, I'm drawing a line this week and looking at a few final ways in which Shakespeare plays with words. He is a genius at it and he does so in a variety of ways we haven't discussed yet. First up, a slight continuation of last week's alliteration. If you can bear it, it's one more term that begins with an A, assonance. Just as alliteration is primarily the use of repeated consonants, assonance is the repetition of vowel sounds. So, for example, when Hamlet sees Ophelia at the end of to be or not to be, he says, The fair Ophelia, nymph in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered. Ophelia and orisons and all is an example of assonance. Those sounds are very similar and they flow along through the line. Shakespeare could just as easily have written the word prayers instead of orisons, which is rather more obscure, but orisons matches up and creates the assonance through the line. Likewise, in Ophelia and nymph, the th sound echoes through and then nymph and sins have the same vowel also. Assonance is a little subtler than alliteration, but it is an equally powerful element of how Shakespeare writes. Another version of assonance is when a writer repeats the same consonants with a different vowel sound within them. The simplest example I have found is something like killed, cold and culled. They're all very different words on paper, but there's a strong similarity in their sounds. Hamlet's first line in the whole play, which we will discuss again a little later in this episode, has an example of this kind of assonance. He says, a little more than kin and less than kind. They're almost exactly the same words, with a different vowel and of course the D at the end the second time. Another device that Shakespeare has Hamlet use is hyperbole. Now, this comes from the ancient Greek for throwing beyond. Imagine a javelin player who makes a throw and it goes out of the stadium. That's how my Greek teacher always insisted. We remember the word hyperbole. It was very important. Hyperbole is a kind of obvious exaggeration. Hamlet is a big fan of it. He repeatedly likens his father to various Greek gods and heroes. And then in To Be or Not To Be, he likens life's difficulties to an attacking army and indeed to the entire sea. His hyperboles are dramatic, they're arresting images, but they're very effective, and we know immediately what he's trying to describe. I suppose the opposite of hyperbole is understatement, when a character describes something in a much smaller way. At the end of Hamlet's first soliloquy, having described the outrageous marriage between his mother and his uncle, and having wished that he himself could just dissolve and be done with it all, he concludes that it is not, nor it cannot come to good. It is not good is very much an understatement of how he's feeling here. Hamlet is one of very few plays, all of them among the more complicated and troubling works in the canon, that actually features the word paradox. Of course, paradox is a much larger issue than simply wordplay, And if you're interested, I'll put a link in the notes to a bracing essay from the 1950s that attempts to define and even solve what the writer calls the seven paradoxes of Hamlet. But this is an episode about words and word play, so I want to look particularly at some of the verbal paradoxes we find, most especially in Claudius's first speech. 
We might already have our suspicions about what kind of a person he is, given what we've heard in the first scene. But now we meet a king who uses a string of images that should, if we really think about it, make us wonder what on earth he's up to. Claudius's very first line is paradoxical. He says, Though yet of Hamlet our dear brother's death the memory be green, and so on. He's talking about death and his own loss of his brother, but he describes it as green, a colour of renewal, of growth and of life. This is immediately suspicious at some level. It's followed with more images that again seem contradictory. Therefore our sometime sister, now our queen, the imperial jointress to this warlike state, have we, as twere, with a defeated joy, with an auspicious and a dropping eye, with mirth in funeral and with dirge in marriage, in equal scale weighing delight and dole, taken to wife. Of course this is an official speech to the court, but Shakespeare has the new king describe his rather controversial, if not incestuous, marriage in paradoxical terms. It's a defeated joy, with an auspicious and a dropping eye. These are both negative and positive, but the overall effect does seem to be negative. And then, bonus points if you spotted all the assonance in this line to come, with mirth in funeral and dirge in marriage. If you're listening closely to all of this, you're going to wind up agreeing with Hamlet, It really is not, nor it cannot come to good. When I was in school, one of my favourite literary devices was always onomatopoeia, particularly because it was just a big, long, silly-sounding word. And indeed it means that something's name is made from its sound. I was also learning ancient Greek in school, so this was doubly exciting to me. Splash, bang, tick, tock and cuckoo are all reasonably clear examples of how it works. I confess now, I have trolled through the play trying to find an example of onomatopoeia in Hamlet, of how Shakespeare's playing with words whose sounds convey their meanings, but all I've managed to find comes from Ophelia, when she's describing Hamlet's mind as overthrown, sweet bells jangled out of tune. If you know or can think of any other examples, by all means please do let me know. Finally, Puns, or plays on words, are an essential element of Hamlet, and particularly of how the prince himself communicates. As I mentioned, from his very first introduction, we see Hamlet as a character who plays with words. His first line is a pun. Claudius has just called him his son, and immediately Hamlet replies, a little more than kin and less than kind. He's cleverly balancing kin and kind, words that differ only by a letter, And by this he's showing that he's smart and that he recognises his position in this new regime, but that he's going to question it. His next line is another salty comeback, when Claudius asks how the clouds still hang about him. Indeed, my lord, I am too much of the sun. This is a different kind of a play on words. Now he's using the similarity of the sounds. Sun in the sky, the opposite of clouds, and of course the word sun that Claudius just used to describe him. Hamlet's wordplay expands throughout the play. He runs rings around Polonius. Think of words, 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 and the matter that you read, my lord. And he plays mercilessly at all times with the old man, spinning ideas out of the air, musing and mocking Polonius on everything from life and sex and clouds to death and burial. His jokes about these two get even grislier after Polonius dies, and he makes a variety of grim puns about where the corpse is, and indeed what happens to a body after the person's life ends. 
In Act Five of the play, Hamlet meets an even greater foil for his playful way with words when he trades jokes and quips and barbs with the gravedigger. Even in so gloomy an atmosphere as the graveyard, Hamlet continues to twist words and ideas to shape and reshape the world as he sees it. He's certainly not the only Shakespearean character who plays like this. There are brilliant exchanges of puns and wit and words between Catherine and Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew, or Beatrice and Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing, or even between Mr. and Mrs. Macbeth. But Hamlet doesn't have a match for his wordplay. It's well documented that the part has more lines than any other character in Shakespeare, but nobody seems able to keep up. He speaks and spins his thoughts like no other, and his dazzling wordplay is part of what makes him so interesting. But it's also what makes him mysterious. Even though we know that he's only pretending to be mad, there's so much twisting and turning of language and even of reality that we can start to wonder if the line between method and madness has been blurred, if not erased. As I've said a good few times in these episodes of The Basics, these various devices and techniques that we're looking at do not call out for our attention on their own. Even within the example of a little more than kin and less than kind, we can see that there is assonance and a play on words and it's in blank verse and so on. These are all just elements of style, woven densely and, of course, remarkably into the fabric of the play. Assonance, hyperbole, understatement, paradox and puns are all building blocks within Shakespeare's language, alongside antithesis, alliteration and what you will. Knowing what they are and how they operate can help us to appreciate Shakespeare's skills all the more, but it's unlikely that any reviewer is ever going to write about how much they enjoyed the assonance they heard in a production of the play. At least, one certainly hopes not. There is one further and rather complicated way in which Shakespeare plays with words, and that is with rhyme. I think it's big enough to be worth its own episode, since it is of course to do with verse and rhythm as well as wordplay. Rather than shoehorn rhyme into this episode, I'm going to give it a podcast all to itself on the next episode of The Basics.